0: despising him and yet it reminds me of the scripture while we were yet sinners Christ died for us what a awesome awesome truth that is if you will one of the great joys I have is to be able to uh to pray and I think it's important that as a church we we pray together so um would you join me in prayer heavens are yours, our Lord. The heavens are yours and all of their hosts. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. In your hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains belong to you. The sea is yours for you made it and your hand formed the dry land. Every beast of the forest is yours and the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to you. Therefore, you are a great God and the great King above all gods. In your hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Your dominion, O Lord, is an everlasting dominion. And your kingdom endures from generation to generation. Lord, you do according to your will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay your hand or ask, what have you done? Or why have you done that? We know, O God, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Power belongs to you, and with you nothing is impossible. All authority is yours, both in heaven and on earth. Father, we come to you as rebels, as evil men and women who have done wrong in your sight. Lord, we confess that though you have created us and given us every good thing, from the smallest breath to our most precious possession, we have not given you the thanks that you deserve. Have mercy on us. Though we have been made to worship you and in your service is joy and liberty, yet we have put ourselves as the master of other things. We confess, Father God, that we have made ourselves slaves to our desires. We desire comfort, desires for pleasures, desires for wealth and riches. We have regarded them as better masters than you, and they have borne us bitter fruit. Lord, we have arranged our lives not according to your commands as our creator, but according to what will gratify the cravings of our hearts. We are prepared to go to any lengths to serve ourselves. Have mercy on us. Father, we confess that we will disregard the needs of others and your holy word in order to claim what we want. Father, we confess that our enmity is against you. We confess that our hearts too often feel no affection for you. We confess that we see no value in hearing your voice and your word. And we feel no joy in pouring out our hearts to you in prayer. Father, we confess that even the cross of Christ, even that great act of love and grace by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, often inspires little devotion or adoration in our hearts. Lord, forgive us for our ingratitude. Forgive us for our idolatry. Forgive us for our rebellion and pride. We ask for your mercy and for your grace in our helplessness. We ask that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the grounds of his blood shed in our place for his name's sake. O Lord, we take comfort in your word. It says, praise the Lord, O my soul and all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who forgives all of our sins and heals all of our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. Lord, you are powerful in your love for us. And we give you praise and we give you thanks. Lord, you've heard it in our prayers. You've heard it in our songs. You've heard it in our conversations and in our hearts. And now, Lord God, we want to obey your word. We want to cast our cares upon you. We do this not because you are in any way lacking in your fullness towards us, but because we would give you glory by making it known publicly what a trustworthy and reliable God that you are. So, Lord, we pray for the members of this congregation that are in special need. You know who they are, and you know what those needs are. We pray, Father God, that you would show yourself sufficient. And when you do, turn our hearts to give thanks to you. Help us, Lord God, to be quick to give you praise and thanks for your goodness and your kindness in answering our prayers. We pray for those among us who are sick or who have families and friends who are in the hospital. Show tenderness to them, Lord God, and remind them of the promises that we have in Christ. We pray, Lord, for health and strength and even more for faith to trust you. Lord, we pray for the lonely in this congregation. Perhaps due to the death of a spouse, they feel the weight of silence when they enter their homes and are and continue to grieve, though nobody sees them. Lord, we pray that you'd comfort them. You tell us in your word, Lord God, that we should pray for those in authority over us, and so we pray for our president. We pray that you would give him wisdom, and thank you for the form of government that we have in this nation under which we enjoy the freedom of religion. And we thank you, Lord God, for the freedom of speech and the freedom of assembly that are recognized in this land. We thank you that these are recognized rights from you, We pray also at this time of year for wisdom, especially school administrators during this season as they are trying to be respectful of the laws and faith of the students. Lord, we pray that you'd give them wisdom. We pray for school staff as they return to the workplace. We pray for the students, Lord God, as they enter back into a new school year. We pray, Father God, that during this time of year, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ would be joyfully, regularly, and clearly shared. Father, we pray too for the ministries that are such a blessing to us. I think of the Arizona Baptist Children's Services and the New Life Pregnancy Centers. This year has had five decisions for Christ, 14 decisions to choose life for their baby, 258 foster kids and 15 adoptions. Lord, we pray that you would encourage them, that those who labor there to study your word and and guide their hearts, we pray that you'd encourage them every day in this good work. We pray, Lord God, for a fruitful women's ministry. We thank you for the many who labored in that, for those who assisted at the Pacing Christian School this week, reaching out to the, and reaching out to those who are incarcerated and who are sharing the gospel in prison. For the numerous Bible studies, we pray, Lord God, for churches around this country. We pray for college students in them, Lord God, as they begin this new semester. Lord. We pray that you would plant a vital witness for the gospel. We pray for the Christian challenge as they uh, meet on the university campuses. We pray for Daniel Connolly, Lord God, as he is reaching out to to university students and seeking to uh, bring the gospel to them. Lord God, we thank you for Samuel Woods as he's preaching at the Open Air Chapel this morning. We pray that he shepherds that group well. We pray for our disaster relief team right now who is deployed on our southern border. And we ask, Lord God, that you would enable them to offer a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus to prepare food for the distribution to those who are working in border security and those from other countries who seek entrance into this country. Lord God, we pray that you would help the disaster relief team show the love of Christ in this volatile situation. And we pray that your light would shine through. Lord, we pray for the Christians in our land and we pray that we would be diligent in spending personal time with you alone. Make us disciplined in this way. Cause us not to be hypocrites, Lord, to have a good relationship with you, not just some passing acquaintance. God, deepen our relationship with you. We pray that you would bless our families, that the families of this church would know the benefits of having Christians in them and the influence that we are for love and for generosity, for kindness and forgiveness. So here we are in this congregation. We pray, Lord God that you would mark us as those who are convicted of our sins towards you. Give us tender consciences towards you, we pray. And then, Lord, show us Jesus. Show us clearly in your word the sacrifice of Christ. By your Spirit, Lord, make it appear to our hearts. Help us to understand and believe and feed on you by faith, O risen Lord. We thank you for the hope that you lay before us, and we pray that you would increase our faith. We ask that you would do that even today through the preaching of your word. And we ask this in the gracious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You guys are uh, turning in your Bibles to Acts as we continue our study. In the book of Acts, I, I do want to make a, a quick reminder of you, of you that um, next month we will have our, our monthly progress report, and that's basically a business meeting. And it's important as we, as we go through that. Cause this morning, one of the things we talked about in Bible study was the, the necessity, the responsibility of being a church member. And we do hold to church membership. We believe that it is utterly and completely thoroughly biblical. In fact, much of the, much of the New Testament makes no sense um, apart from church membership. And, and one of the things that I drew from this particular Bible study um, was that church membership is a job description. I really like that, that it describes what, what we do as a church. It, is, it calls you to a response. If you are a member of this church, you're not just here to, I don't know, get a tax write-off or something. It is a job description. So um, it's, we have some really important decisions to make next month. And I'll be writing you guys a letter. And they're good decisions. They're awesome decisions. Don't, don't worry. They're not scary or bad or bad news. or anything. They're great decisions. So we're excited about them. If you're not a member of this church, um, in three weeks we will have an entry points class. And this is a, a necessary if you do want to be a church member. Even if you don't want to be a church member but you want to learn a little bit more about us, this is a great class. We're going to talk about who we are, what we do, and why we do it. What are our associations? Who are we associated with? Why? Those types of things. So keep that in, in mind. And one of the great things that I love about church membership is we believe in a regenerate church membership. That is, whoever's a member of the church needs to be born again. One of the great things about that. One of my the great privileges for myself is when I hear your testimony. When you come to me and you've gone through the the when we've affirmed that you are a follower of Christ, and I hear how God saved you, it is awesome to me. So think about this. Think about your salvation. Think about not just the moment that you called upon the name of the Lord and He regenerated you and gave you a new heart. Not just that moment. What I want you to think about is all the little detaily things that happened. And not just that moment, but we how God had prepared your heart for that moment. And think about all of the events that had to take place and all of the people who came together at that exact place and time And you called upon the name of the Lord. Think about that. Some of you have really detailed, crazy stories how, man, you know, you found yourself in a place you never dreamed you would be, and there you heard the gospel. That's kind of how it was for me. I ended up in a place that was so not me. And I was compelled. I was compelled to go there, I could not not go there. Oh, God was fixing and he was arranging a meeting for me that I had no idea. I had no idea he was at work. But it's interesting, the intricate details that are involved in you and I coming to know Christ. The reason, One of the reasons I bring that up is because in Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40, we're going to see a guy come to faith in Christ and the details are amazing how God superintends over the events to bring this man to salvation. So let me give you a little bit of a, a background, give you the setting of where we've been, and then I'll give you a little bit of a preview of where I hope to go today. The setting is simply that the gospel has now come to the region of Samaria. The gospel has come to Samaria. The gospel has uh, crushed both racial and cultural boundaries. And uh, I don't think I have my little pointer working. But the gospel has come to Samaria. The gospel, Samaria is this little purple area up here. Right there is Jerusalem. That's where it began because of persecution. Philip and a whole bunch of people ended up in Samaria. And the gospel has crushed racial and cultural barriers um, that, um, that were the gospel seeds. Had been scattered by the fires of persecution, and now Samaritan believers, Samaritan believers were brought in or folded into the Christian community, and they were full fledged, 100%. Equal members in Christ. The people in Jerusalem couldn't say, well, we've been Christians longer, so we're a little bit superior to you in our walk with the Lord. No, the gospel and the Holy Spirit came to the people in Samaria in the exact same way that it came to the people in Jerusalem. You now, you Samaritans, we're normally outcasts, normally rejected, normally outsiders. You have received the gospel and you have received the Holy Spirit and there is no distinction between us and you. This is just kind of where we've been. So that's where we've been. Let me give you a little bit of an idea of where I hope to go today. And, and as you've probably seen, I've, I've entitled this message, Three Angles. And the reason being is what I'm going to do, there's a whole lot here in this passage of text, and I was just trying to contemplate, what's the best way to communicate the, the various things that are going on? And it's like there's three different camera angles, if you will. I want to look at three different aspects three different occurrences or three different areas of importance in this passage of text. And it's like there are three different camera angles. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the text and we're going to look at camera angle number one, and that is the salvation is of God. We're going to see God's meticulous oversight in salvation, or we might say salvation is a work of God. So we're going to read the text and we're going to look and Study how salvation is from God. The second camera angle... um, Keep that... Go back there. Keep there. Stay there for a bit. The second camera angle is the... We're going to read the text again, and we're going to look specifically at the message of the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the message that Philip shared that brought salvation? It's important that we know what is the gospel. So, second camera angle is the good news of Jesus. And the third camera angle that we'll look at is we'll read the text again, and we'll see how God... We're going to see this passage of text in the big story of the Bible. It's not just some isolated story that stands simply by itself, um, but it's actually part of a bigger picture. It's something that has been being prepared way back, way back, even Genesis 11. We're seeing God preparing for this moment. And so we want to fit this story into the big picture, the big story of the Bible. Are you with me? Are you ready? Here we go. Let's read our text Follow along with me in Acts chapter 26, 8, 26 through 40. Here's what I want you to do. As I'm reading, you don't get a space out. Alright? You get to, I want you to to think and and consider. How is God? I want you to take note of how God is working to bring. This individual, the individual we're going to encounter, this Ethiopian man, how we bring, how God works to bring him to a place of salvation. So as I read, keep that in mind. Here we go. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Listen to God's inerrant word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Read, sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearers, so he was silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning... And he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We pray that God would impart and transform our lives by his gracious word. I want to begin with this idea that salvation is a work of God. Salvation is a work of God. That's our first camera angle. That salvation is a work of God. And... um, You'll notice that now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go. By the way, these are imperatives. These are commands. Rise and go. These are not suggestions. Listen, Philip, maybe it would be a good idea if you think about it, if you have the time and if it fits your schedule, and I don't know, I'd really appreciate it if you would rise and go. No, Philip, rise and go. This is a direct command of God Almighty. It says an angel of the Lord. I want you to understand that angels they are messengers of God they speak God's word they do not speak of their own authority they do not speak of their own desires they speak only what God is speaking rise and go Philip this is God's mouthpiece and I rise and go go where? go to a desolate place go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza I find it interesting that Philip is presently engaged in a rather fruitful ministry in the area of Samaria. He's preaching the gospel, and people are being healed, miracles are taking place, God is doing great things, and the angel of the Lord says, get up from this prosperous ministry and go down to some desolate road. from the fruitful fields of Samaria with mass conversions, with signs and wonders, get up, leave it, and go down to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke notes, this is a desert place. Verse 27 is great. And he rose and went. (laughs) Awesome. Just reminds me of Abraham, doesn't it? Abraham, get up, you and your family, and go to a place that I'm going to show you. And he got up, and he did. So we see Philip following and doing what God has commanded. Now, an angel, it begins with an angel of the Lord speaking, a mouthpiece of God speaking, get up and go do this thing Philip does. He rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian... Un- There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Notice this. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So by God's divine, meticulous purposes, he calls Philip to get out of the out of Samaria and go down to this deserted place. Philip has no idea where he's going, why he's going, but he encounters one guy. Actually, there's probably a whole bunch of people traveling, but one guy we're focused on. And he's writing in this chair. Kids, if you have a yellow piece of paper and you want to draw what a chariot looks like, that's part of your, your task today. And the spirit now says to Philip, get up and join with the chariot. We should have no mistake that God is directing the events that are going on here. This is not Philip saying, well, I had some... God is directing the events. God has his eyes set on this Ethiopian man and God is going to bring salvation to this man. He's going to use Philip, drawing him from one place and bringing him to another. Another thing we should see, so certainly we see the direct activity of God bringing this man, bringing Philip to this man. But let's not overlook how God has prepared the heart of this man to receive what Philip is going to tell him. He's been working on this individual, it seems, um, long, before Philip, long before Philip arrives. He's made a long journey to Jerusalem. I read somewhere it was a five-month journey, and then I kind of forgot if it's five months round trip or five months each way. That's why I put a question mark in your notes. You guys can look that up. But it's a long journey. That's the point. It's a long way. He's, he's going to Jerusalem to worship. He makes this long journey in order to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he goes and he worships. And as he's coming back, he, he's reading the scroll. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. So my question then is, all, oh, and then Philip just happens to arrive when this guy just happens to be reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Hmm, coincidence? What are the odds that this foreigner just happens to be reading this messianic passage? I'm not you don't need to give me the odds. Don't say, well, 5,000 to 1 or something like that. I'm not, I'm not asking for that. The rhetorical question. What are the odds? Rise and go. Philip goes, and he just happens to join in this entourage about the time that this royal official is reading about the suffering servant. And he's wondering I wonder who this guy is. I wonder what's going on. Here's how. God has now blessed this Ethiopian man with two great gifts. Two incredible gifts. Gift number one, he blesses him with his word. He gave him a scroll of Isaiah. An Ethiopian man has the scroll of Isaiah and he is reading it. God has gifted this man with his word. And here's the other thing. He has gifted this man with a teacher who can explain the word to him. Two great great gifts. God is bringing this man to salvation. He has given him his word and he has given him a teacher who will explain the fullness of this passage out in the middle of nowhere. Another very interesting aspect is we consider this camera angle. This camera angle being that God has the all of the details of salvation figured out. And one of those details, remember what Luke said? This is a desert place. Oh, look, there's water for baptism. Get up, leave your fruitful ministry, go to a place that I'm going, going to show you. There's one guy, he just happens to be coming back from Jerusalem, worshiping Yahweh, he's, a, he's been preparing his heart, he's reading Isaiah, Philip gets in, and I'll talk about the gospel that Philip exp- explains in the next camera angle. And then that just so happens, oh look! So God gives him his word, he gives him a teacher, and oh look, here we are in a desert place, there's water for baptism. How convenient! I want you to understand, God is the author of salvation. Again, think about your own conversion. God uses means to put us in a collision course where we will collide with the people of God and the word of God and the spirit of God that will convict our hearts so that we call upon his name. God is preparing this person for salvation. God uses all sorts of means. He's used external means like persecution, right? How did Samaria receive the gospel? It received the gospel because persecution came to Jerusalem and people fled and they ended up in Samaria. And Philip preaches the gospel there and then the the apostles, Peter and John, go and they preach the gospel there and people are receiving the gospel. God uses external means like that and God is also using internal means like God's prompting the Spirit the angel of the Lord or the spirit of the Lord says get up and join that man's chariot God uses means God is designed so again think about your salvation I think about the night that I called upon the name of the Lord for weeks I look back for weeks God had been preparing my heart to hear the gospel I did not believe God. did not believe there was a God or anything like that. But for weeks, I look back now, I see, oh, God is driving me to people who had recently called upon my former friend, my friends who I may have not seen in a a month or so, and I went over to their house and they're going, well, I don't do those kinds of things anymore. I became a Christian. All of these people, everywhere I'm going, I'm finding Christians. What are you guys doing? Then I find myself in, in a place I would have never dreamed of in a bajillion years. A school play. You need to understand, I never did anything in high school. I didn't go to a football game. I didn't go to a basketball game. I didn't go to a dance. Or I didn't go to anything in school. I went to school because I wanted to graduate. I went to school, and at lunchtime, I left campus. At the end of lunchtime, I came back to campus, and at 3 o'clock, I was off campus. I hated high school. It was a means to an end. That's it. And there's a party in the desert. That we're getting ready for. And I am compelled to go to a school play. Are you kidding me? Maybe a football game. Maybe. I mean, I told my mom I went to all the football games. Yeah, I'm going to a football game tonight. Don't tell her. She knows. She knows. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I always figured, I, yeah, I always learned to score. I learned that after the first game. I was like, I better cover that base. I find myself in a school play, walking. All my friends are mocking me. Are you kidding me? You're going to a play? And I heard the gospel and I came home and I called upon the name of the Lord and he saved me. God is arranging events to collide us with the gospel. That's what he's doing here. So that's the first camera angle that we we want to see. God is working salvation. Here's the next camera angle. And that is that salvation, God, salvation is the work of God and salvation comes by the, the word of God. Salvation is by the word of God. Philip is directed to go to a very specific place to meet a very specific person who is reading a very specific text for the purpose of bringing him to salvation. And I love the question. So Philip is walking along. The Spirit says, "Go join him in the chariot." He does. He joins him in the chariot, and Philip asks him this leading question. It's very important, but it's a leading, it's a question prompting a response. Do you understand what you're reading? Do you know what you're reading? And the man's response was, How can I, unless somebody guides me? I find that interesting in a lot of ways. First of all, that it, the Bible is very clear, 1 Corinthians 2, that unless we have the Spirit of God, we will not understand the Word of God. There are a whole lot of people, I know a whole lot of great scholars who can tell you all sorts of incredible things about the Bible but they do not know the author and they do not know the beauty of God's word they don't have the spirit of God i know people who barely escaped 6th grade and know more about this book than those scholars because they have god dwelling within them, sharing. And so here's a man, he doesn't have the Spirit of God, but God says, well, that's not too big of a deal. I'll send him a teacher. And the teacher will show him, and then when he becomes born again, I will give him my Spirit. Do you understand what you are reading? How can I? How can I, unless somebody guides me? And so he invites Philip, come up and sit with me. This is, a, this is a theme then that runs all the way through Luke and Acts. And the theme is that first we see Jesus opens the minds of his disciples. Remember that in Luke chapter 24? Two guys walking along the road to Emmaus and they're talking and Jesus appears to them and they're going along and they can't understand how is it that this traveler who's Jesus, they just don't recognize him. Um, didn't know what was going on, on in, in Jerusalem, and then he says this, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then what happens? He takes them through the scriptures, and he says he shows them how all of the scriptures speak of him. Sure. We're going to see that same thing. Philip learns this. He learned it because Jesus taught his disciples, and his disciples taught guys like Philip. And Philip is now going to teach that exact same thing. He's going to pick up and show this man from the scriptures how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's word. That's one of the things we hope to teach you here. You will learn God's word. You would be able to pick up the Bible in any place, anybody, any place, and show how this points to Christ. You understand what you're reading? How can I, unless somebody teaches me? And so Philip then says, and he picked up with this passage, and, and he invited him. And, and the eunuch says to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say these things? It, it's, it, it comes from um, Isaiah chapter 53. And it's one of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. um, And these are about the servant of God. And they are songs. because They're written in a lyrical manner. And so they are called the servant songs. There's four of them that talk about the suffering servant. And it talks about a, a variety of things. You can go home and look up the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And this is one of them one of the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And the text tells us, and it says, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip and said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And he told him the good news about Jesus. And so he begins with this scripture. He begins with this scripture, Isaiah 53, and begins to talk about how this scripture points, not to the prophet, as the eunuch asked, but to somebody else. And that somebody else was the person of Jesus Christ. And it says, and he preached, let me get this right, and he told him the good news about Jesus. And we kind of covered this phrasing a couple weeks ago. Basically, he gospeled the gospel. That's really, uh, if you want to be very literal. He was gospeling the gospel. He was good-newsing the good news. That's what he was doing. He wasn't getting in debate. He wasn't, talking, well, let me, tell you, let me tell you about Jesus. I'm going to give you the good news from this passage of text. He demonstrates then how the Old Testament speaks of and finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ because this is what Jesus said the Old Testament did. Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all of the scriptures point to me. He told the Pharisees, you you read the law of Moses thinking that in them you'll find life. Don't you know they speak of me? Philip learned that from the apostles who learned that from Jesus. And so Philip just picks up and says, let me tell you how this text points the person and the reality of Jesus Christ, who is this suffering servant. He is the one who was like a sheep led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before shears, he stayed silent. He did not open his mouth. I love this. The statement says, in its humiliation, justice was denied him. And this statement here, who can describe his generation? What kind of generation would put an innocent man like that to death? Who can describe that? Philip says, let me describe that to you. I got the answer. I can tell you right now that even this suffering servant's death was the fulfillment of God's purposes to bring salvation to a guy like you, Mr. Ethiopian. So then we want to ask ourselves, I wonder what Philip actually said to him, other than the little bit of detail we have or the little bit of explanation. I wonder what Philip said to him. Well, I don't know exactly what Philip said to him, but I can tell you because he learned so well from his mentors, from the apostles, when we look at the salvation speeches in the book of Acts, there is a consistent theme. Let me tell you what the consistent theme of the gospel presentation in the books of Acts is and from there we can surmise this is certainly something that Philip would have said and besides that this is a sermon in the church so we need to hear the gospel I wonder what Philip said all of the gospel messages in the book of Acts up until this point and really going on is this, Jesus was put to death by the Jews but God raised him to life look on the day of Pentecost You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Remember when he was before the Sanhedrin? right? You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. You put him to death, but God raised him to death. This suffering serpent, who is this guy? It is Jesus, and we killed him. But God raised him to life. Oh, tell me more. And that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and he is a source of salvation to all who will believe upon him. He is both Lord and Christ. He is Lord over everything. He is Messiah, Savior of everything. He purchased our salvation to all who believe in him. Certainly he includes the death of Jesus because the death of Jesus is significant in salvation. He is the suffering servant. How is it that a Messiah can die? That was a stumbling block. How can somebody so great die? I thought he, it sounds like he got beat by his enemies. No. No. His death is necessary for salvation. The righteous for the unrighteous. The innocent for the guilty. He took your place. You're guilty. You've sinned. He's sinless. He bore your penalty on the cross. His death is necessary for your salvation. Jesus was put to death. He was raised to life by God. He is both Lord and Christ, and His death was necessary in order for you to have life. And ultimately, God raised him from the dead. The resurrection gave Jesus the authority now to offer salvation. Jesus, now risen, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, now imparts salvation to all who call upon him. Here's the interesting thing. On the day of Pentecost, the people responded, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Before the Sanhedrin, They just rejected it. I'm going to plead with you today. Be like the people on the day of Pentecost. Brethren, what should we do? What should we do? Let me ask you this question. This isn't to embarrass anybody. This is not to make you feel bad. It's just an assessment. Could you start with anywhere in the Old Testament... And 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 show how it is fulfilled in Christ. Could you do that? Could you take the story of Samson? And somebody says, "I don't understand Samson." My response is, "Me neither." But I can show you how it points to Christ. If somebody comes to you and say, "You know what? I believe that. I believe your Bible, except..." Look at all the wars and the death and the slaughter and the genocide that we find in the kings and in Samuel and all of the. How in the world could you take them there and point them and show how Christ is the fulfillment? Can you do that? Maybe you can't. If you would like to, I will commit myself to sit down with you as often as necessary and help you to understand All of scripture points to Jesus anywhere in this book. Open it up. And we can begin to look at how it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do. Philip could do it. He's not baffled going, well, you know, I don't really understand Isaiah. It's a big book. It's kind of confusing to me. No, I know exactly what this is talking about. So that's our second camera angle. I want to talk about the third camera angle. How this story, this account, fits into the big picture of Scripture. I love this portion. I love this camera angle. This is so encouraging, at least to me. I hope it is to you. Because this section of Scripture just doesn't stand by itself. It's not an isolated passage. Well, you hear me say that a lot. There is no passage of text. It's just on its own, sitting by itself, without any context, without anything. It is part of a big story. Remember, the Bible is a big story. It has a beginning. It has an end. It begins in a temple garden, and it ends in a temple garden, and everything in between is how God takes people who broke his covenant, disobeyed him, and we were given the sentence of death and he brings them about to not only save them and remove the death sentence, but bring them into his home, call them citizens of his kingdom and make them sons and daughters and inheritors of all the promises of God. That's the big story. How does this little story about the Ethiopian guy fit into the big story? I'm glad you asked. The first question that we want to look at is, who is this guy? Who is this traveler? Well, the first thing we know is that he is Ethiopian. All right? Now, he is probably not from what we would consider present-day Ethiopia. It's probably more the area of what we would call Sudan. It was an ancient kingdom. And the Bible is called Cush. You've all heard, right? Cush? All right. It was a remote but a very advanced culture. Um, and it was a place of fascination. Greeks and Romans were fascinated by the civilization of Kush. In fact, both Greeks and Romans not only were fascinated, but it's interesting because they called it the end of the earth. This is the end of the earth. The kings in this area were viewed as incarnations of the sun god. And they were too divine, too royal, too high to to deal with the everyday affairs. And so the everyday affairs, the ruling of the kingdom of Cush was put under the authority of the queen. And she was called the Candace. Kind of like the Pharaoh or the Caesar. It's a title. It is not a name. So when we learn that this Ethiopian... Man was a court official of Candace. You might say of the Candace. He served her. She was the queen. She ruled over the the country, the nation. She's powerful. He's her treasurer. The other thing we learn is that he is a eunuch. In other words, he is a disfigured man. Here's the thing. He's also restricted from participating in the Jewish temple. You'll find that in Deuteronomy. He cannot not, not only participate, he can't even enter the temple. He's kept outside. So think about it. This man goes to Jerusalem. He goes to worship and he cannot even enter into He's a Gentile. He's a foreigner, but he can't even go to the court of Gentiles outside. You can't even look in the door. So here's what we have. Let me give you a quick summary. We have a defective foreigner from a pagan realm, and he's unwelcome in the worship of Yahweh. That's what we have. But we also have a promise. We have many promises. Promises by Almighty God. That in the days of Messiah, when Messiah comes. When the Savior comes, guys like him are no longer going to be outcasts, but are going to be brought in as full members. That's what we have. Solomon anticipated it in his prayer, and I'm not going to read this one in First Kings chapter 8.41. He says, I pray that this temple of yours will be a place that foreigners will come and they will be welcomed in and they will see your goodness and mercy. So Solomon is even praying this will begin to take place. But in Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 11, this is what we read. Again, it's talking about um, a great day when the Messiah, who in this instance in Isaiah, calls him the righteous branch. When the righteous branch rules. When the righteous branch, the one, by the way, this is how, Isaiah describes the righteous branch. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be upon him. This is the righteous branch. A stump, a descendant of Jesse. When he comes... In that day, in the day of the righteous branch, in the day of Messiah, in the day of the suffering servant, in that day, listen, the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains from His people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. When the righteous branch comes, when Messiah comes, I'm going to gather my people. I'm going to gather them from Cush and I'm going to bring them under the rulership of this righteous branch. But that's not all. Isaiah has much more to say to this man. In fact, maybe he was reading it because in Isaiah chapter 56, remember the text we looked at was from Isaiah 53, just a couple chapters later. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 and 5. Listen to this. This is also, um, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not, listen, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord... The eunuchs who keep my sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. There's going to come a day when you will not say, I'm a dry tree, I have no children. God says, I'm going to make you my own. There is a place for the broken and disenfranchised in the kingdom of heaven. God, I, you can say, man, I am a worthless nothing. I've heard it from my parents as long as I've lived. I've heard all this. I'm, God says, don't even bother with that. You are my, you can be my child. I don't care where you came from. There is a day, and there was a day that was coming, when in the kingdom of Messiah, everybody from Assyria, from Cush, from Egypt to Lebanon, from, the, from, the, from Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, even to the ends of the earth, God is going to gather his people and bring them under his rule. This is going on. This is ha- Imagine you're this Ethiopian guy and you're realizing all of the promises of God are being fulfilled right now in me. What kind of crazy day is that? And then he asked this really amazing question. I love this. It's not a question. It's a statement. What prevents me then from being baptized? Um, Nothing. What prevents me then from being joined? What is baptism? Baptism is being joined in union with Christ. It is being placed into Christ. I was an outcast, but now you're telling me that in Messiah, in Jesus Christ, who died for my sins, I am no longer an outcast, but the, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies are being fulfilled, and I can be part of God's kingdom, not only as a worshiper, but as a child. Then, is there anything? Does my physical defect, does my, my heritage, does my where I come from, does the fact that I'm a black man, does any of this have anything to do with hindering me from being baptized? No. Nothing. What prevents me from being baptized? Can I be joined in union with Christ? Yes. We are going to bury you in, in baptism. We're going to raise you to new life and you will be born again.
1: Hmm.
0: There are no barriers from keeping this man from being joined in union with Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 gives us a great picture of, of baptism. And the picture there is that we die... We are buried and we are raised again. That is, we are in Christ. We are, placed, we are baptized into Christ. We are joined in union with Christ. Christ died, we died. Christ is buried, we're buried. Christ is risen, we're risen. We are saying, when I'm baptized into Christ, I am identifying with my Savior in His death, burial, and resurrection. I am a new creation. I am in Christ. What prevents me? Does my skin color, does my physical defect, does anything, does my former religion, does this keep me from being joined in union with Christ? No. Let's go down into the water. No barriers keep this man from being joined in union with Christ. And then I guess maybe like so predictable. And he went on his way rejoicing. You think? Philip gets taken out of the picture and the Ethiopian goes on his way rejoicing. Philip goes back to the region of Samaria. He begins preaching, continues, I shouldn't say begin, he continues preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, which is going to set us up for Philip or for Peter who comes to Caesarea. And so Philip goes back to the region of Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. The Ethiopian takes the gospel. Where does he take it? To the ends of the earth. The gospel has now gone to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's going to keep going. God is doing great and mighty things. And by the way, while the gospel didn't take great hold, just a side note: this isn't this is free. Um, about 300 AD, 400 AD, there's a very, very strong Christian commu- community um, in the land of Cush. In um, What we would call Sudan but in this kingdom where this guy went a very very strong Christian community rose up um, and the gospel was held kings the kings uh, began to reject um, their pagan ways and they began to follow Christ and I think you can trace that directly to this guy this one unnamed Ethiopian man who happened to be traveling along minding his own business when God brings him a guy by the name of Philip and changed this guy's world forever, changed our world forever. So let me just, I'll close with this. I want you to understand that God oversees salvation from the beginning to the end. This guy, um, perhaps he cried out to the Lord, at some point, saying, Lord, show me. If so, then Philip's presence was a response to his prayer. But this man, that God calls Philip out of a prosperous ministry to go to some desolate place to preach the gospel to one guy. God oversees salvation from beginning to end. and We can be thankful for that. The other thing we need to understand: it is the gospel that saves. You will, you need to understand. Well, first of all, that's the message of the Book of Acts, the message of the whole Bible. But certainly, spe- very specifically, it is the gospel that saves. This man was saved by the preaching of God's word. He heard God. What ha- what happened? Philip gospeled the gospel to him. He good news the good news to him. He saves by the gospel. It is the gospel that saves, folks. We need to understand that it is the gospel that saves. I remember talking to a guy. Um, some of you guys have been to that uh, Tuesday night at the library. There's a guy who does a thing on creation science, and I've never been able to go, but some of you have been. And it's awesome, and I was talking to a friend of mine um, afterwards, and, he's, and we were talking about that, and he's, and he's like going, man I, just, man, I just don't know enough to really be able to explain it to other people and all of these things, and I, and I get so lost. I wish I knew more about this. I'm saying, I do too, but you know what? being able to to explain that God is creator of all things, the scientific side of that is not the gospel. You need to know the gospel. You need to share the gospel because being able to tear down um, false ideas is not going to save anybody. Not that it's not important or invaluable. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying having the right answers to all of the complex issues in life will not bring a person to salvation. It may tear down some barriers, but it's the gospel that saves. We tried to share the gospel with you a little bit today that Jesus was put to death, raised to life by by God that he is both Lord and Christ. His death paid for your salvation. It paid the penalty for your sin. His resurrection gives him authority to offer that salvation and all who call upon his name will be saved. Today's the day of salvation. So I'm offering that to you today. If you are not A follower of Jesus Christ, not following after him. Um, I would love to talk to you today. Simone would love to talk to you today. Nelson, who's been presiding over this, he'll talk to you about it. Him and his wife, Beth. Charlie, um, he's the one who did the offering. He'll talk to you about the gospel. Lots of people in here would love to talk to you about the gospel. And then finally, God is the author of salvation, his means of salvation is the gospel. And the gospel is for all. If you think for a moment that you are excluded, that you have out the grace of God, I am here to tell you that that's not true. Stop believing that lie. It's just a lie from hell. All right? You have not out-sinned the grace of God. You have not. All right? He died for your sins. I hear people say, well, if I come to church, the, the whole roof will collapse. Oh, it won't. You aren't that powerful. Your sin isn't that great. Where sin abounds, the Bible says, grace abounds even more. So think about how great your sin is, and you think it hinders you. I will tell you this, grace abounds even more than the depth of your sin. And the grace of Christ is um, available to you right now. God begins the salvation. God, salvation is from beginning to end. It is the gospel that saves, and the gospel is for all. Would you stand and let's pray. Our Father, there is none like you. You are the one from who existed before time began. You are the everlasting God for whom there is no beginning, no end. We are grateful, Father God, that you have not left yourself without a witness. And here we are this day, Father God, trying to talk about your great promises. We are unworthy to, do, to speak of such great matters, but here we are. We thank you, Lord God, for Christ who died for our sins, who gave himself the the innocent for the guilty. We thank you, Lord God, that you've drawn us to a place where you've saved us. We thank you, Lord God, that all of our hindrances do not keep us from being your children. So, Lord, I pray that you'd keep us this day. I pray that your name would be exalted. I pray that we would love you more than we love anything else. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I think it seems right that we sing. Well, to uh, paraphrase our Ethiopian guy, what prevents me from enjoying a fellowship meal? Just one thing. That is, we leave by blessing one another. Let's bless one another. The grace of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Lunch is downstairs.